Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, February 27th, 2023. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute senior fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Washington commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute senior fellow, Matthew Cottonetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Well, I wouldn't say chickens are coming home to roost, but the um, uh, the uh, science worshipers who said that everybody who raised questions about the uh, epidemiological approach and study of the coronavirus over the last three years, uh, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people who raised specific questions about specific aspects of this policy, uh, the policies that were instituted, and the theory of how the virus became a worldwide killing machine, uh, those people who are raising questions are being vindicated, and the people who said, shut up, he explained to everybody who raised these questions, um are being discredited by the inevitable uh, re-examination of the data and the facts. So we have three different aspects of this. We have the question of where the virus originated. We have a question of the mitigation strategies that were used to limit the virus's effect, both here and across the world and we have a third and i'm blocking on what it is so would somebody help me with the with the third natural immunity natural immunity whether natural immunity from the virus is this equivalent of a vaccine right new study in the lancet okay so yes so the lancet says hey guess what like all like all the theory of vaccination if you get COVID and your body produces antibodies to fight COVID, that's a good way to fight COVID. Uh, for some reason, in the world of the, this political, socio-political argument about COVID, we were told that the vaccines were wondrous, crazy, wonderful things that were going to prevent transmission and keep you from getting it again. Um because they were vaccines and yet the vaccine theory which is you want to mimic the body's you want to create a reaction inside the body to the disease that then causes antibody for some reason that natural that natural immunity effect was considered uh un, un, unhelpful or or not not good enough or something well, like that and the, well, Lancet, we know the reason yeah yeah well, well, no, but we can get to the reason. Okay. But let's just say it is a, it's a it, it is a bizarre fact if you think about it logically. The same people who are saying you need 22 shots and 17 boosters also said natural immunity isn't going to work. What is the purpose of getting a vaccination? It is to stimulate natural immunity within the body. <laughs> that is that is what vaccination is. Is to create a natural immunity effect. It's not you impu- you you bring in the immunity from the outside in the form of an injection. And actual scientists have been essentially saying what I just said. Uh, I mean, what I, I have been arguing that the body isn't better than than the than the plas- than the serum, and that never even made the slightest bit of sense but because of the way this conversation devolved over the last three years if you didn't say this you were somehow anti-vax right well i mean first they said of course we wouldn't have a vaccine for for three or four years at the earliest right it was impossible to even think we could have a vaccine for a virus of this complexity so we'll all have to stay inside and wear masks and we'll get to that in a moment. But once we did have the vaccine, uh, thanks to Operation Warp Speed under the Trump administration, um, then the entire government and the public health infrastructure quickly shifted to a jabs first strategy. The way to get out of the uh, pandemic is for everyone to get a shot. And so seen from that standpoint of um, the bureaucracy, they don't want people to think that natural immunity is the equivalent 
because they want everyone to get a vaccine. So their interest is in suppressing uh, the idea that natural immunity could be the equivalent of having a jab. And what we see from um, the NBC summary of the Lancet report is that immunity acquired from a COVID infection, and I'm quoting from NBC, is as protective as vaccination against severe illness and death, study finds. A study found that prior infection offered uh, about 79% protection against reinfection from the original uh, virus um, and less against Omicron, which makes sense. Um, and protection against severe illness remained around 90% across all variants after four weeks. And these results exceed uh, what other studies have found for two or and even three mRNA doses. So what we have with this is a huge pillar of the government's response to the pandemic, I think, has been shattered. Um, and that you can even see um, kind of a, uh, a tacit recognition of this fact um, in the Biden administration's action, because all of the get your shot campaigns, line up, get your shot, here's your daily shot report, how many people have gotten shots or two shots or three shots have vanished from the headlines. Well, we should also remember that it's it's good and and right that we're excavating what people said at the time and comparing it to what we now know and showing, you know, particularly because a lot of these arguments, both about uh, vaccines and natural immunity and masks um, and lockdowns and school closures, all of these were were used as a weapon, a political weapon to tar anyone's political opponents as, you know, purveyors of misinformation and whatnot. I, I remember Kamala Harris as a, as a candidate uh, raising suspicion about whether she would even take a, a, vac a Trump vaccine. Remember the Trump vaccine? So there, there have been at every single crucial moment where we should have some general trust and faith in the experts to do stuff, uh, instant politicization. This this occurred on the right too as well. We shouldn't it, it's not a one one-sided thing. But when we talk when we think about why no one wants to line up and get more shots or no one wants to listen to public health experts anymore, uh our elected officials, uh some of whom have gone on the record and still haven't changed their tweets on this matter, are a huge part of this. They instantly jump to a political argument about a, a very complicated public health issue and when they were proven wrong, there was no mea culpa. And I know I'm the I'm the kind of annoying person who's like I wish they would just say oh, we were wrong and now we know better, but they won't. And that's part of the problem with the larger mistrust we have in our public health uh, institutions now. And okay, also so got, I, the, yeah, the, ahead, the labeling of dissent as some sort of pathology itself or as, yes. or, or as anti-science. Um, from the start, that worked to sort of further fracture the 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 culture around this question you know it was like it it it, it when you started sort of treating people as uh, freakish outliers for raising legitimate questions they sort of embraced that in a way um that that drove a wedge straight through the culture so in the summer of 2020 when when we were sort of at the the early summer when we were at the sort of the 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 bottom right where where people were they were locking they were putting padlocks on playgrounds so people wouldn't their children wouldn't go outside stuff like that um i remember saying you know maybe the thing to do here is to get it like now I knew people who got it early who were very sick who got i mean i knew four or five different people who got very sick, somebody who almost died uh, at Mount Sinai Hospital, things like that. So it was, we didn't know enough to know that the thing that I'm suggesting, which is the way that ordinary people sought immunity from diseases before there were lots of shots. Like when I was a baby, I got the mumps, 1961, something like that. And my mother made my sister sit in the room with me so that they would get it before they would get mumps and they would get it before, you know, puberty. And then they would, they would be immune from mumps. And mm -hmm. that was a totally normal way to deal with things before the total, you know, introduction of the MMR, which is the, you know, German measles, mumps, uh, Rubella. vaccination. Rubella, yeah. yeah Rubella, right. So, um, so I thought, okay, well, maybe you should get it. But then you just didn't know, like, whether it was going to kill you or not, basically, right? So 
we then ha- got a lot of data on and it turned out that the that the death rate was sort of unacceptably high you know at, at 2 or 3% but it was still 2 or 3% you know were you going to risk that for yourselves therefore you did want to mitigate and try to avoid getting it until until a vaccine arrived because of the murderousness of the the potential murderousness of the vaccine now here's where the rubber met met the road and changed everything and where this regime became a sort of self-perpetuating neurosis engine so we knew three months or four months in that if you were under 12 you were not at risk from the virus i mean if you just looked at the when they were collecting mass data nobody under 12 was getting sick you know it's now almost three years right it'll be three years next month that america shut down and the total you know death and illness toll of people particularly under the age of five but certainly under the age of 12 is a thousand two thousand three thousand it's nothing I mean, it's not even minuscule. I mean, it's not, it doesn't, you can't chart it on a, you know, like. An asterisk. Hundreds of millions of people in this country have gotten COVID, according to what the CDC and people say. People have COVID in their systems. 2,000 people out of 250 million, let's just throw a number out a hundred million it doesn't even matter doesn't even register and yet for a year and a half kids were being put in masks kids were being kept out of school kids were being told to isolate from other children we have a colossal generational mental health crisis that has erupted among people under the age of 18 that accelerated wildly because of this and the data were clear early. When, that's the evil. That's the evil that went but, on here. Not that people said you need to wait for a vaccine or you need to uh, isolate or something like that. It's that we knew that people, we knew that kids weren't sick and we made them live as though they were. But we also, we we knew this at the, I mean, the one of the, the, the yeah. crucial question to ask is how, as a society and a culture and and our government in particular and it's it's sort of boosters in the media successfully suppressed people who actually did raise that exact question i'm thinking about masking here there were all these studies many several of which were conducted in europe um and and the protocol remember going into covid the protocol on masking was that vi- it, they did not even n95 masks did not protect against respiratory transmission this was just this was that's why at the very beginning they were like masks don't really help don't hoard masks and then that that switched on a dime in part i think to show the public health uh bureaucracy doing something when you know pre-vaccination but we knew that masks were not necessary for kids and in almost every other developed country on earth they did not mask children look at those kids in europe they were not little preschoolers and stuff they were going back to school they were not masked they would they would occasionally wear masks or have lockdowns for brief periods of time to combat a rise in infections but they actually followed the science we did not. We had a hysterical anti-scientific response based on some idea of safety culture that we are still dealing with the after effects of because it's not just that these kids have a mental health crisis in our cities. There's a juvenile crime spike that happened after the result of all the school lockdowns. There are kids who are way behind academically in, in basic subjects. All of these are the kind of downstream effects of these very, very poor decisions that were enforced through a combination of uh, power, government power, and a kind of media, I mean, I don't want to say conspiracy, but a kind of an agreement among mainstream media outlets to suppress people or to or to label as extremists or misinformation peddlers, people who challenge the status quo. Can I just go back to, to even before the, the masks issue and, and just re- recall that the very first bit of um, public health advice in response to the, the outbreak was also wrong. And I'm talking about pre-masks. I'm talking about hand-washing, right? Um, so from the jump, 
because it, you know, there were all these instructions about you have to wash for this amount of time and use soap and videos about how to wash sing your hands. Happy birthday twice. Right. Sing recall, happy right? birthday twice. Sing happy birthday twice. And then it turned out that you can't get it from services anyway. Um, so from the start, there was this like they went to this trove of seemingly good ideas that really had no 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 scientific uh, uh, su support for them in this case. I do think uh, John is right, though, that, you know, it's the initial uh, moments of the pandemic. There's a moment of incredible ignorance. You don't know what's going on. Of course, we'll get to the Chinese government later in the show, but they're covering up everything. This disease is spreading. The first case is when it hit Italy and then when it hit New York were extremely severe and scary. Um, and so there's a moment there we're like, OK, whoa, there's going to be confusion. There's going to be ignorance and there's going to be kind of flailing around in the dark. What the big change happened, I think John is exactly right. It was in the spring of 2020 when one, it was clear that uh, the kids were not at risk, thank God. And then two, uh, the George Floyd protests happened and all of a sudden everyone could go outside and be in a big group together. And as long as they're um, protesting peacefully uh, against racial injustice, that's okay. Everybody else, we're not, though, we're not peacefully. It depends. Mostly, know, mostly peaceful. Most, it was mostly as long peaceful. as they're mostly peacefully protesting against fiery, but mostly peaceful. <laughs> right. Then you're fine. And that I think that from that point on, uh, certainly the lockdown policies just seemed uh, and the school policies were increasingly out of whack. I will say also, um, as we're having this conversation, I'm just struck by the fact um, of monumental government failure. Monumental government failure, because, of course, all of these policies were perpetuated through a bureaucratic apparatus that included state penalties, that included, you know, fines, risks of jail. I mean, um, this is the coercive power of the state showing, revealing itself to be completely incompetent to managing this task in the way that it wanted to. Of course, the previous major pandemic was in the 50s with the uh, flu uh, then uh, the, the flu pandemic in, I think, 1957. And um, government didn't do anything. <laughs> and it went away. And so this time they decided, all right, we're going to control this pandemic, maybe because it, it, it could be incredibly uh, disastrous if we do not. Um, very quickly, it became clear they can't control it. And they're all wrong. And all of the secondary effects of their policies were extremely harmful uh, to the body politic and the social fabric. And yet, and yet, we have voices now on the right who are saying this is precisely the time to embrace government. The, the idea that, that the knowledge problem that exists with dealing with the pandemic would not exist in matters of political economy uh, or cultural policy, I think, is, uh, is totally fallacious. I think we had a perfect storm here, really, on, on, among liberals and the left that, that had been in the works or had been sort of brewing for a generation. Uh, all kinds of things dovetailed. Environmental panic. The idea that, you know, you needed to prepare for the fact that the world itself, the very air you breathe, the water you drink, what, whatever is, whatever particulate matter is in the air uh, could kill you. So they had, they had decades of, ginning themselves up into a kind of state of low-grade hysteria that this was a fuse and the match was lit by by covid and the emotional overwhelming emotional reaction which is here here it is here it is the apocalypse is here okay maybe it's not a pollutant maybe it's not you know something that comes out of a smokestack it's even more pernicious because it's invisible and deadly and maybe it, it spews off your body. It's a virus. Once the virus is out, there's nothing you can do. That was the other interesting thing. So on the one hand, so there's nothing you can do because the virus is out. That logically would lead you to say, if there's nothing you can do, then you got to let it work its evil magic and what will happen will happen, which is essentially we don't really know how effective the vaccination regime was or wasn't. Let's just assume that tens of millions of people didn't get sick who might otherwise have gotten sick. I believe that to be the case and that it was therefore valuable, but, or didn't die. I mean, I think that's, yeah, that's what I mean. Right? They didn't get sick yeah, or they, right, did, or right. the, or the effects were really totally mitigated 
in a very positive way. I believe that, and I'm, you know, okay. But um, then you have people going, oh my God, what are we going to do? And then you have other stuff that is pulled off the shelf, and that's masking and washing. Hand washing, masking, washing the boxes that come into your house, closing your door, staying inside. Now, that was illogical. The staying inside thing was obviously illogical because if one person in your house gets it and you're in an enclosed space, other people are going to get it. If your whole point is not trying to make people sick, you're going to make your loved ones sick. That doesn't make any sense. But okay, so we have to do something. And then you get activist government. Okay, we have to do something. Here's what we're going to do. Everyone's going to wear masks. Everyone is, there's going to be a law practically that says you have to stand six feet apart. In New York, you know, every restaurant, movie theater, public venue is closed. When they're opened up, the governor sits around and says only 25% capacity. Based on, is there a scientific formula that says that having 25% capacity? Is how to go? No, it's because he's a psychotic fascist who is thrilled to be able to control private industry. And to get a lot of primetime television uh, right. flattery. Right. In that case, really, it's like, okay, I'll make it, you know, if you behave nicely, I'll make it 35%. And so you have this weird world in which you have, on the one hand, hopelessness and pessimism, and then you have over-activist government responding to try to mitigate the response, this overactive pessimism. So you have a catering to neurosis plus, but and, and just, a catering. And then of I, course you had the, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I just want to jump in and say, I, yeah. I think you're being too generous to the overactive government aspect of this, particularly the federal government and the CDC. I said they were actually fascism. completely <laughs> complicit in cherry picking studies that were like literally rejected by scientists. And in terms of masking, they, they would point to it like a hair salon study that was observational, not a clinical, you know, randomized trial. They'd point to other things that only proved what they wanted to say, which is continued lockdowns, continued masking. And Rochelle Walensky was still singing the same tune like a month ago when she testified before Congress. They actively ignored what the the studies out there that contradicted the message of total lockdown, total masking, and they continue to stand by that now. And now as new evidence is coming out, we don't see any any acknowledgement of the fact that even the scientific studies that they were purporting as evidence for this, which is what a lot of local elected leaders pointed to. Let's be honest. I when when I was battling the teachers union and battling DC public schools to reopen and not to mask kids all the time, they would constantly point to the CDC. Look, the CDC yeah. says that masking helps. It works. It works. It didn't show that, but they couldn't challenge that federal agency in order to make more have more independence in their local decision making. I, I, I just don't want to leave out another aspect of this, which is <clears throat> so much of this, <clears throat> excuse me, has to do with Trump uh, and the response to him. Right. Because very early on, the die was cast. The idea was um, Trump is lax here. He doesn't care. He doesn't know. We're going to protect you from him, and here's how we're going to do it. And then when you talk about a case like Cuomo, uh, he was at some point one of the potential Trump slayers. So he was he was being rewarded um, for every crackdown, which was, you know, in the larger context, this 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 sort of anti-Trump approach. You know, Trump's talking about opening up, letting it rip. Um, and so the way you 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 show that you're not Trump is is to is to say no 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 crack Look, down. Absolutely. Think, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I just I, I think too um, the media uh, has to be introduced at this point in the conversation because you know the CDC says stuff uh, all the time. You go on their website. You know, uh, I should be dead right now based on uh, my you know it, my flouting. Uh, or uh, of the uh, CDC dietary uh, requirements. Did you eat a runny you know, egg this morning? I, Matt? <laughs> I mean, I don't even want to think about it. I, you know, the, uh, so they say that stuff all the time. Um, no one pays attention to them. And what's fascinating, Christine, you mentioned that Rochelle Walensky was saying this, uh, singing the same tune. Um, Rochelle Walensky, by the way, we should say was the head yeah. was is Biden's appointed head of the CDC. Head of the CDC, CDC came into right. office, therefore in uh, february of 2021 right and so she's still if she's still saying this uh this line the you know public health uh, expert line in testimony before congress no one's paying attention to her 
No one's paying attention to her. I had this realization over the weekend. We are done. We are over. Biden was right. America is ba- is back to where it was uh, three years ago in terms of uh, individual um, behavior with regard to COVID-19. So we've moved to a, another state where no one's paying attention to Rachel Walensky. But if the media decided that we should be paying attention to Rachel Walensky, we, that's all we would be hearing about. Well, there's and an so, avian flu brewing overseas, so stay tuned. <laughs> right. Well, you know, the um, they keyed in and they broadcast the public health messages uh, and with little regard uh, of, of the science, as you say, but also since it's the media, uh, and I include myself in this, we, we have no accountability. So we, we can say whatever. This is never going to come back to us. Uh, and And... And because they were anti-Trump. So it all kind of created this nexus where um, the government failure was allowed not only to occur, but to persist. And I think that's the worst part, because if if the situation had been different, the political situation, the media situation had been different, um, there might have been uh, added public pressure to uh, relax some of these restrictions uh, much earlier. Well, there was a lot of public pressure to relax the restrictions just away from the centers of media, right? And we have a presidential campaign that is now gaining steam. That Free Florida. That, <laughs> yeah, that, uh, I mean, uh, Ron DeSantis has, has issued an ad today uh, online or did last night that is basically, I didn't fall for it. I... My job as governor of Florida in the middle of the pandemic was to liberate Floridians from this uh, thing that was going on um, everywhere else. Now, isn't that the kind of leadership you want at, you know, in Washington? It's going to be a very potent argument because Trump's temptation is to say, yeah, they all behave badly because they didn't like me, which is fair. But of course, he was also insanely inconstant. He was really bizarre. He was... He was acting like he wasn't the leader of the free world, but once again, like a call, you know, like a caller to a to a talk show in New York City saying, I hear maybe you can swallow bleach, or I hear but you he can did, do this, or I hear worst, you can he, yeah. He he deferred to Fauci over and over again. That's right. actually if you're well, if you're if you're a rightist, ma- right. So he yeah. so he mouthed off about ivermectin and hydrochloroquine and this and that and the other thing. And by the way. That's another thing we could get to. I don't think we're going to have time because it doesn't fit in this category of actual things that have happened that have disproved the scientific, the supposed public science consensus. But, you know, what was so terrible about that? What was so terrible about telling people that maybe you should try hydrochloroquine? It's a it's a malaria cure and and. COVID seems to mimic many of the symptoms of malaria, and therefore maybe this would be a good way to treat. I know people who took hydrochloroquine, here's the anecdote, and it went really well for them taking hydrochloroquine. So I was always in this weird place where, uh, you know, I, I knew that it had worked. But, you know, at the same time, when you have somebody who's also saying all this other <coughs> crap <coughs> from the podium at the White House while deferring to really bad public health behavior. And we need to remember it's that we all, you know, Fauci has now become a bugbear, but Fauci was a typified what was bad about the public health response, which is that he said things like, I'm just going to set a number of, you know, the number of people where, how much immunity has herd immunity has developed I'll get it. You know, first I said maybe it should be 70. Now I'm thinking 80, 85 was a little like Cuomo saying 25% or 35% occupancy in a restaurant or a bar or whatever it was he said. And nobody said boo to him except people who were then being attacked and suppressed and having their Twitter accounts shut down. And that, in turn, had a very bad effect on the right, I would say. Not that I don't think that response is understandable or appropriate, which is that it caused the skeptics to get a little too skeptical at times. In other words, they were like, you know, this and this and this are making me, I don't think this is right. And then suddenly it's, the vaccine is bad. 
vaccine is bad and it's this is bad that's bad this everything everything that the that people were saying needed to be done to mitigate the effects of covid was a kind of uh, leftist conspiracy the problem was some of it was and some of it wasn't and uh and they were just kind of in this nihilistic frame where it's like everything they're saying should be you know needs to be but it's because okay. it, it's because you start to assume that all of that that the all the public health information is is part of this program of obscurantism. So you yeah. figure, okay, they're not they're not letting any any alternative um, uh, ideas or any challenges into the debate. So how can we trust any of it? Well, and actually, and which is, of course, the opposite of how you do science. Science is not a decided thing that stays static. It's constantly shifting, updating, changing through experimentation, through study. That's the whole point. And actually, a public health establishment that wasn't intent on wielding power over people, but actually informing people would have a very would have had a very different approach. And we should probably speak to the origin story too okay, because yes. this this was yes. where actually elected officials were uh, you know senator tom cotton in particular to whom the entire mainstream media still owes an apology who was tarred as you know a complete conspiracy nut you know on par with you know cia's putting fluoride in the water like like that kind of level of conspiratorial thinking right i i think it's right so so yesterday um sunday the wall street journal broke a story sunday morning saying that the um department of energy energy yep. had uh determined or uh, with a low level of confidence not the highest level of confidence though you know what sometimes when you hear intelligence things are issued with the highest level of confidence it turns out they're not true so i don't know why high level or low level is whatever that in fact the uh, the COVID uh, virus uh, did emerge from the uh, virology lab uh, in Wuhan and uh, not from uh, an animal to human transmission. This is the hardest thing to swallow. Uh, not I don't mean it, it, it. This is the bitterest pill for me because why it was that saying there's a virology lab a block from the wuhan you know animal wet market. market wet market they're studying covid they're studying these viruses and then everyone in Wuhan starts to get sick and China shuts the country down. Gee, maybe it's the virology lab and not that somebody ate a bat. Why it was that this became an unacceptable opinion. And there are many layers to this. And you go back and look at our pieces by three different pieces by Jim Meggs in commentary on this subject over the last two years. Um, this is among the greatest outrages of our time that people who said, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. You know, I know you saw something like this happen in the movie that Steven Soderbergh made about, about a contagion where a monkey gets something because they're chopping down a forest and bites Gwyneth Paltrow and then she spreads the disease to the entire planet. But um, there was a lab where they were working on weaponizing viruses. I mean, they weren't weaponizing; they were they were working on you know making them testing how, how yeah testing the how you could yeah, yeah how you could protect against them whatever. And there was a leak, and then the Chinese government behaved like totalitarian governments do. Watch the miniseries Chernobyl if you want to see how that works. And and then, you know, and then basically shut the country down and then said, no, no, nothing's going on here. OK, please. Uh, what, what I find uh, most uh, amusing, I mean, I don't want to be amusing necessarily about such an important topic. And, and you're right, John, this is a huge story that The Wall Street Journal uh, broke over the weekend. It's that, uh, you know, there are 18 intelligence agencies uh, within the United States uh, government, uh, and two of them have assessed uh, that uh, the virus originated from the lab in Wuhan. The two 
that have uh, come on the side of uh, the typically conservative critics uh, are the Department of Energy, led by Jennifer Granholm, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So the two most vilified uh, agencies on the American right are actually the ones that have intelligence units which purport this uh, idea that uh, the, uh, the commonsensical idea that the virus originated in a lab. Interestingly enough, the, you know, the FBI assessment had come out earlier and it uh, reached its conclusion um, that the uh, virus originated in the lab with a moderate level of confidence. And uh, so the DOEs is a low level of confidence. There are other agencies who have picked the, um, the kind of the public health narrative, which is uh, still committed to the idea that it's a natural, uh, naturally occurring virus. They're all low confidence too. So you take from this the idea of one, divided government. Two, no one really still has any conclusive <laughs> uh, uh, or consensus around whether where it came from. But also three, which is that if common sense and then the new intelligence, which seems to have sparked this DOA, DOE report um, combined, really leans heavily uh, toward the uh, uh, virology lab um theory and um for that reason you know there need to be real sanctions on on the chinese government that was tom cotton's reaction uh to the news um uh, and i think he's absolutely right and it's now three years uh with with nothing uh, no real cost imposed on the chinese government for unleashing this virus uh into well the world and we also need to make we need to do a review and and there's an ongoing investigation in the house i believe about about the origins of covid stuff too that's that's ongoing that they haven't released any information about what they've their conclusions but we also need to look at where we're cooperating with labs like wuhan wh whose protocols are obviously not up to snuff and see where we're funding jointly ventures with chinese labs that might not be uh what we want to do going forward given the chinese government's reaction to what happened in wuhan it's worse than that because the U.S. government essentially banned participation four, five, six, seven years ago, banned participation using government, U.S. government dollars in so-called so gain-of-function research, uh, which is this thing where you, you um, incept a more serious version of a virus in order to see how you can kill it on the grounds that it was too dangerous, that basically that something like this could happen if you did it. And then it turned out that even though that was the case, uh, there was a backdoor. And the backdoor was grants the U.S. government to uh, NGOs that then gave, that then participated uh, in gain of, that then gave money as a pass-through to gain-of-function research in places like Wuhan, and that is this question that is going now to be a very seriously investigated thing by this very tiny Republican House majority into the relationship between Anthony Fauci and Peter Daszak or Dajak or whatever it is, who basically ran the pass through that gave the Wuhan lab money and um, and created by himself in February or March of 2020, this consensus that it was bad to look at the Wuhan lab's work, arranging a hundred some odd virologists or something to sign a letter that was published again in the Lancet saying that there was something wrong. You don't look here. You are not allowed to look here. Don't look here. And you had this weird thing happen that was then echoed every couple of months in weird ways bill de blasio mayor of new york upon upon the first news of the uh, outbreak in china telling new yorkers to go and shop in chinatown to show that they were not going to fall for trump's uh china phobia or xenophobia or whatever whatever term it was that 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 he wanted to use we have this now notorious Walter Durante level tweet from Apurva Mandarvi, who was the was the uh, I'm just trying to find the text here. Uh, Apurva Mandavili, excuse me, um, became the New York Times's lead reporter on COVID, 
when the Times defenestrated Donald McNeil for its its star science reporter for the crime of having said something that offended students on a on a Times trip to South America. Urva Mandavili, the lead reporter of the most important news organization in the world, tweeted on May 26, 2021, quote, Someday we will stop talking about the lab leak theory and maybe even admit its racist roots, but alas, that day is not yet here. Again, that's not some, you know, Twitter blowhard or Eric Swal, you know, some jerky congressman or something like that. This was the lead reporter on COVID for the most important journalistic organization in the world saying that the lab leak theory was racist. So this this was the third leg of, I would say, this generational shift in the way people were going to think about this that I mentioned about, you know, the panic over disease and the over and over activist government and all of this was this lack entire lack of antibody on among liberals and the left when people said you're not allowed to talk about this because it's xenophobic and that's where the trump stuff comes in because of course trump is a xenophobe and is leading america into a horrible racist direction and there are going to be no consequences for that either except you know people like us never stop talking about it right and it does feed into the, the the propaganda line of the um, Chinese Communist Party, right? Yeah. Which wanted to shut down any criticism of its actions, and what the Western the way to do that in Western media was to uh, amplify the idea that any criticism of the Chinese government is somehow racist, which is just completely wrong. Um, and and yet. There are so many useful idiots in the American media who will simply parrot lines that are that are written in Beijing by by the propaganda units of the Chinese Communist Party. That is one reason, John, just to to get back to what you were saying about um, whether the uh, the China committees or the House uh, Committee on Oversight, two separate committees in the new Republican House, will really look at the Fauci, Peter Daszak. Uh, co- uh, connections to the Wuhan lab. I'm a little bit worried about that simply because, you know, from my point of view, I don't want to f- give China the ammunition to keep blaming Americans for the virus, right? We need to keep the spotlight on the reactions of Xi Jinping and the Chinese communist bureaucracy once the leak occurred, because they're the reason <laughs> that it, it was allowed to spill and go so uh, and um, spread so uh, so far and cause all of these disruptions we spent the hour talking about. If we turn our fire onto ourselves, I fear that's exactly what Xi Jinping wants. And so I'm very, even though we need to investigate this, I agree. I am worried about us. Uh, and America is in such a mood now where we just love tearing ourselves apart anyway. Yeah. I feel if they go down that road and it's Fauci, 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 we're missing the bigger picture, which is China, the threat from China. And the fact that despite all of the missteps that uh, Xi's government has performed since the virus um, uh, 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 spilled in um, 19, uh, in 2019, including his zero COVID policy, which was such a disaster. And, and then his ending of the policy was also a complete and total disaster. Um, he's still there. These authoritarians are incredibly tenacious and still incredibly threatening. And so I don't think we can afford really to take our eye off the ball, which is the threat from overseas. But it absolutely should be a campaign issue in 2024 for whoever is and and I hope it's not Trump, but whoever the Republican standard bearer is needs to say part of the problem here. Part of the reason we can't have these conversations about China is that you have a Democratic administration that's very, very hesitant to criticize China. Like they just do not want to go there. It's even though I know behind the scenes they're doing all kinds of stuff. President Biden doesn't like talking about China. He just does not. And Trump probably liked talking about China too much. So we need some sort of moderation well, there in the middle. But So there, there is some shift in that over the last week, but I think it's probably evanescent and temporary because clearly the administration is freaked out by this faint toward Russia, by the Chinese 
uh, the CIA director, uh, Burns was on, uh, William Burns was on face the nation on CBS yesterday saying that they have essentially a high level of confidence that China is seriously considering arming, helping arm Russia to fight in Ukraine. Uh, they wouldn't be talking about this publicly the way they're talking about it publicly if they were not unnerved and trying to head, G off at the pass before he goes down this road. But you're right that this is sort of the first moment at which we have um, a serious and concerted effort to talk about the um, bad acting of China abroad and in the world. Biden does like to say we're in a competition for the, you know, for the 21st century between us and China. We're in a competition. It's not Coke versus Never bet against America. If I were Xi, I wouldn't do. Who wants to be Xi? Right Name now? one. Name one world Name one. leader. Who <laughs> Literally, leader my right? kid Name does one. model right. UN. They all want to be <laughs> China. Right. Like but <laughs> Abe, Abe. So I, Matt makes a very eloquent case, but I, and and I, I I do think that it's terrible that we want to uh, tear tear each other, that we tear each other apart the way we're tearing each other apart. I don't I think that government oversight obliges the Republicans in the House to study the ways in which the federal government's behavior, the executive branch's behavior in particular, um acted as an accelerant of bad social and political behavior over the last Three years. I mean, the oversight of the CDC requires some kind of study of what the hell was going on in there. And, you know, all of our favorite moments that we we've talked about repeatedly on this show. Rochelle Walensky saying we should relent on schools and then having a meeting with the head of the teachers union, Randy Weingarten, and changing her line 24 hours later when there never should have been school shutdowns ever. I mean, you know, it's stuff like that. Like, can uh, well, this? Okay, hey, well, please. no, I mean, I I agree. I think we have to do both. We will do both. the 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 danger, you know, that that Matt talks about is very real because the temptation to beat up on our own is so much greater than the temptation to beat up on on China. And there, and look, there are elements among the NatCons. Um, who have very little problem with China and a much bigger problem with Fauci. And and they also and, don't have a problem with Russia. So they don't have a right. problem with China and they don't have a problem with Russia. Therefore, an alliance between China and Russia against Ukraine doesn't bother them very much. So uh, can I make a point on yeah. Burns just real quickly? You know, yeah. uh, we've been we've been picking up these uh, leaks from the administration or, you know, an actual interview in the case of uh, Burns who is very close to Biden. I mean, I think he's actually the national security official that Biden listens to the most and uh, actually gives um, the most leeway and authority in policymaking and diplomacy. So for Burns to come out and say that he's very worried about this, is a, it's a big deal. However, it makes me very worried uh, that this alliance and this um, providing of arms um, to Russia in a much more direct and fulsome manner um, is of great risk for this reason. What the administration has been doing reminds me a lot of their deterrence by disclosure campaign in the lead up to the invasion of Ukraine oh, a year that's ago. that's good, yeah. And, and remember, it was always, we watch out, you know, they're building the army, they, they're going to invade, you better not do it. And the, the message from the administration, <laughs> including from Vice President Harris, says, this will stop them. This will, we are shining a light. We're shining a light on Russia's actions. And so they're not going to invade because we are disclosing all of this intelligence. And it was incredible intelligence. I mean, they knew exactly what was going on. It was actually a real testament that we still have some type of human, that is human intelligence capability. We certainly have incredible signals intelligence. But um, so it, it showed our intelligence agencies in quite a positive light, which is unusual. At the same time, it did nothing to prevent the invasion. <laughs> did nothing. He was committed. And so what worries me is they're all here saying they're they're kind of making this big show, uh, you know, oh, well, China better not do that. That's going to cross a red line. Please. When did the memo go? When can the memo go out to say never use the words red line when you were talking about international diplomacy? Really? I mean, th this is the red line. So what are you going to do? Right. I mean, 
Well, so this, this, I, I am very, I mean, I'm in more worried now at, at the beginning of this week than I was last week when these reports started coming out that China is indeed going to move to support Russia. Okay, uh, let me just take a, a moment here, uh, take, a, take a quick break to talk to you about our advertiser, uh, Bambi. Um, you've heard me talk about uh, Bambi before. It helps small business owners with their most complex HR issues and employment nuances across all 50 states with all 50 different personnel and regulatory policies. And it helps you implement your own HR policies to protect your business and give you HR peace of mind by matching you with your very own dedicated HR manager by phone, text, email, or real-time chat. Uh, they know your business. They'll know your business. They'll know your specific concerns. And you can implement the most important HR practices for small businesses on Bambi's autopilot. So uh, those HR, if you hire somebody, could cost you 80000 a year. Bambi starts at $99 a month. So go to Bambi.com right now and type in commentary under podcast when you sign up to schedule your free conversation to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E.com, Bambi.com. Type in Commentary Magazine. Okay, so uh, Matt's Matt's, uh, uh, analysis there hit me with the force of revelation, Abe. I think it's an amazing analogy to what happened a year ago. And and I think it also uh, fundamentally uh, shows a certain type of pop culture influence on the way people think about foreign policy that we were going to freak Putin out because we're going to show him we have a microphone in his meetings. We know exactly what he's up to. Okay. So he doesn't care whether we know exactly what he's up right now. It's also it's not a secret that Russia's it, aligning that China's trying to or is is playing footsie about aligning itself with Russia. So what exactly is it we're getting by releasing all this intelligence? It's also um, sort of akin to the idea also that you would encounter in in democratic administrations, particularly, particularly the Obama administration, when um, some international bad actor is doing something bad to say um, the eyes of the world are on you that we're all seeing this. Uh, We will, we will shame you. Um, into into uh, not beating and killing your your citizens or uh, uh, not not holding uh, phony elections um, and so on. It never works. It's but, it is yeah. it's it's all it's all a species of, of avoiding confrontation, which is which is, is where, what we're talking about. Yeah, but it, it's very much like a 20th century playbook that they're using here, right? I have I actually have really high hopes for Representative Mike Gallagher's uh, China Commission in the House. One of the things I think he wants to do is shift the discussion from the way the Biden administration and previous administrations had like to talk about China as like our, our business rival. Ooh, we've got this healthy rivalry and we're going to we're going to work it all out. It's all really about the economy. We both want to thrive. Well, authoritarians have no shame. Abe is absolutely right. So to, to pretend that like saying all this stuff while doing nothing and the things they do see us do are are kind of craven withdrawals from Afghanistan, leaving, you know, lots of people to die and, and girls to be you know locked out of education for several generations. That's what they see us doing. So when they say the eyes of the world are honest they shrug and think yeah well who cares like let's see what you'll do so seeing shifting they think great and we have an audience yeah exactly (laughs) exactly look and they and shifting our understanding to seeing china for what it is based on its own behavior in the last several decades is a really important shift i think for americans to make and we haven't and this is a has been a problem on the right too we haven't really talked about china as a strategic power outside like you know the the people who tend to talk about that for a living that's not been we do not have a new Cold War rival type mentality the way we used to have about the Soviet Union. I'm not saying it's a good thing to have that, but I'm saying we need to shift our understanding from China as a trading partner and a business rival to something more nefarious, which it's shown itself to be. Look, I mean, you you have this cover. Let's go back to the xenophobia argument that we weren't we weren't to look at China's role or we were to soft pedal China's role because to do so might encourage Trump level xenophobia and a hatred of the other and all of that. And by the way, before we talked a lot about the other uh, over the last like 40 years, it's not as though this wasn't an argument being made by liberals and the left toward the Soviet Union during the Cold War. 
we have a boogeyman. It's a boogeyman in Moscow. And, uh, and, you know, and uh, you, you're frightened about what you don't understand. And, 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 you know, they have hawks. The truth is they have hawks and doves and they have lots of different competing interests inside the Soviet Union. And we're not, we're too vulgar to acknowledge the complexities of their system and the competing bureaucratic pressures inside the Soviet Union, because we're just, we're treating them as though they're like so, a unitary monster, right? That so, that was, yes. But so, so you know, what's so bad now is that, um, so you have the, the left saying, let's not be racist to China. And then you have voices on the right saying, don't fall for the boogeyman that, uh, that is Vladimir Putin. Uh, right. So what I'm saying is that 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 argument is 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 um, per, is reper can be repurposed at any moment, right? Uh, yeah. That argument can be repurposed in in the form of xenophobia and American vulgarity and the desire of you know warmongers to be confrontational and all of that. When look, the obvious vulgar answer to China playing footsie with Russia is, oh yeah, you're going to play footsie with Russia. We're going to give Ukraine F-16s. You want you want to play that game. You want to bring in outside forces to 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 help you uh, destroy this country. We're not going to stand by and let that happen. And I do note that um, the way the administration was talking over the weekend again on talk shows and all that. I heard Jake Sullivan on CNN on Sunday is. We're not there yet. They are not saying no. They, for two months ago, if I'm not mistaken, they were saying no to air support. And they are now not saying no. And well, I think they know that they can't say no at this moment. The question is whether they will pull the trigger and move forward. Yeah, well, that. the person who did say no was Biden, who right. told David Muir, oh, that Ukraine doesn't need the planes. Really? Yeah. Has he talked to the Ukrainians? He did say. <laughs> they, say they think they do. Yeah. But but even Biden did say in his sort of typically uh, slightly off way, the answer is no for now. What does that even mean? Yeah, right. <laughs> no right. for now. Maybe in a yeah. month we'll give you the claims. I don't know. It's it's like we're not in an armistice for a month. I mean, look, the war's still going on. It is it is maddening because we're doing this exactly in the wrong way, right? We I hope everybody who is listening to my voice understands. That before this war comes to an end, there will be F-16s being flown by Ukrainian pilots fighting the Russians. The question is whether it happens in a way that hastens the end of the war or comes at a time when the war is in stalemate and this is just going to be another element of the stalemate. And that is entirely on the Biden administration now. It's going to happen. Well, and, you know, and we they have given them, they've given them the MiGs a year ago. Right. Remember, that was the debate a year ago. Are we going to give them the yeah. mix? No, they don't need the mix. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Why not? This, yeah. the, Russia still does not have air supremacy over Ukraine. That's an incredible accomplishment on the part yeah. of the Ukrainians. It's also right. revealing of right. Russia's weaknesses. Yeah. And yet we're in but this look, pattern. Right. Yeah. But what I just said here is something that could then cause various people from the NatCon right to the Michael Tracy left to say, ah, you see here, he's admitting it. He's going there. We're going to be involved in a shooting war. We're, our people are going to get involved in it. I'm not even, honestly, though, I'm for it. I'm not talking about this from the perspective of being, I'm talking about it as a critic of the Biden administration's approach, which is the logic of their position is that inevitably Ukraine is going to get F-16s from the United States because we're not going to bug out and leave them to die. That's what they've said. So if that's the case, the question is, is it going to happen when it will be the most effective or when it will be the least effective? And right now, the way they're talking, it sounds like it will happen when it is at the least effective point. And if they're going to do it anyway, they should do it at the more effective point. That's just plain logic, even if you are the biggest pacifist on earth, because it's not going to end without an effort to retard the Russians from the air. It's just not. And so China, getting back to why we're talking about China here, China is 
if China does what they're talking about doing, they the question is, is the American response going to involve China's deciding to get more deeply involved as a form of this geopolitical chessboard where we, and this is where it is like the Cold War, where we say, you are not getting involved here. You get involved here. We are going to show you the consequences. We're going to make sure that Ukraine wins as fast as possible. That's the only like non-belligerent, non-directly belligerent to China response we could possibly have. That's what proxy wars end up being for, even though that's a pretty grotesque way of looking at why you would support, you know, a, a you know, really devastating and 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 brutal conflict. But we didn't bring the Chinese into this. They're bringing themselves into it, or Russia's bringing themselves into it. And we are coming at the end of a three-year period in which China has done us, if this lab leak hypothesis is proven correct, has done us enormous damage. And we're just going to let them continue. They've done us enormous damage to our, to our, our sense of ourselves, to our polarization, to the hatred that so many Americans feel toward other Americans. And now they're going to do us damage in terms of our geopolitical stance on it. And we're not going to do anything to counter them. So, uh, I don't know what else to say. We'll be back tomorrow. For Abe, Christine, and Matt, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.